Welcome to the Black History and Law Reflection Series. My name is Orissa. I'm a third year law student. And during this Black History Month, I'm just taking the opportunity to speak with some law students and aspiring lawyers within the University of Birmingham to reflect on what Black History Month means to them in relation to law and justice. Hello, Shala. Thanks for joining me today. Um, would you like to just give everyone a quick introduction on who you are, where you are in your legal education journey and what the Caribbean Union is, what that means to you. Hello guys, I'm Sharla or Charles. Um, I'm a third year LLB international law and globalization student. Um, I'm the cultural liaison officer of the Caribbean Union. So what the Caribbean Union does is get all of the University of Birmingham students together who are from a Caribbean background and give them a home away from home. So we host debates, we have parties, we celebrate. Um, we have a lot of external speakers who will come in and talk about opportunities that they have. So we've had um, all sorts of law firms come here. We've had a lot of social work organizations come here and talk about the internships they have to offer. Um, as a cultural liaison officer, my main job is to make sure that all the countries in the Caribbean feel represented so that there's not a focus on one or the other country and that everybody feels understood here and everyone can actually enjoy the events that we have to offer and not feel left out um, because that's our main focus is to not let any Caribbean student feel left out on the basis that they are of Caribbean background. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much um, for that introduction. Um, what would you say to anyone who isn't Caribbean but might be interested in learning about Caribbean culture, maybe? They should just come along to any of our educational events or even any of our parties, because if you want to learn more about the different cultures, then our cultural events, um, I mean, through COVID, it will mostly be our posts on Facebook where we will talk about the different independence days and different historical events that happen across the Caribbean that are important to us. So definitely check out those posts. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, definitely check out the Caribbean Union. On, and on that note, um, we're gonna talk about the legacy of Caribbean people in the UK and how the law has impacted our communities. So I guess we can start by talking about the Windrush generation. I think a lot of people have maybe heard about it in passing, but for those of you who don't know, the term refers to people who arrived in the UK from the Caribbean between sort of 1948 and the early 1970s. And after the Second World War, there was a huge demand for labor to rebuild services and to just help kickstart um, the recovery. And those people were basically recruited from the Commonwealth. And actually the British Nationality Act of 1948 explicitly welcomed people from Commonwealth countries in the Caribbean as citizens. And you know, they went to the Caribbean and gave huge promises about how England was the motherland for them. It was, they were accepted, they belonged. But of course, in reality on the ground when people got to England, it wasn't as it seemed and 
they weren't welcomed and accepted in the communities like the law had set out for them. So, Charles, have you had any of your family come over in the Windrush generation? So my grandma, she was in the generation, but she was quite late. She moved here mid to late 60s. I can't Andy, remember yeah. an exact date. Um, for my other parent, like grandparents, they all moved over as well, but I have absolutely no idea about their experiences. Um, but for my grandma, she was quite lucky because somehow she managed to find a landlord who was Jamaican as well, who already had her mm. house. And so my grandma and because my grandma came to meet my auntie, who was already here. So my grandma yeah. came to live with her. Um, and that's one of the barriers, I think, that was stuck because a lot of landlords wouldn't rent out houses to black people at the time. And that made yeah. people coming across especially difficult. Um, I don't know how my grandma's landlord managed to get a hold of the house. Um, but my grandma came here and she worked in factory jobs um, initially. That's one of the... Um, it was a common form of work for people to come over here and to be like manual laborers. She has told me very few stories about the racism and the unwelcoming attitudes she experienced here. Um, one thing that happened to me when I was in her old neighborhood, when I was younger and I experienced like a racist incident and I went and I told my grandma about it and she was really angry and she was saying, oh, back in the day when people used to do that, you know, she'd talk about how I should defend myself in those situations. And apart from what my grandma's told me directly, I'd heard from my mum about some of the issues she had in the neighbourhood because um, my grandma moved to a neighbourhood in Birmingham that's known for being intolerant. So mm. a lot of her neighbours just had an issue with her for no reason. And they'd be just rude. Um, they'd be rude towards my mum and my auntie, her, her older sister as well, growing up. So if anything yeah. happened between kids and then the parents would get involved, the parents would let my grandma know that a lot of their issues with her were to do with more so her background than kids fighting. So a lot of people were like physically aggressive towards my grandma. And she's quite a small woman as well. Like you, you wouldn't Aww. think she was small because of how tough she stands and how strong mannered she is. But um, my grandma learned a lot about defending herself from people who would try to insult her take advantage of her and just otherwise degrade her for not being English. So that was a lot of her experience when she came here all the way up until like 2000s. Um, she experienced a lot of that from the neighbourhood in general. So like, I always um, found that like she just had not difficulties assimilating, I guess, um, because she wasn't on her own. Like I said, she came here to see my auntie and she lived with a Jamaican landlord but she didn't exactly warm to the place in the way that she should have done yeah no that's really interesting I can definitely draw a lot of parallels between that and some of the experiences with my family as well like my great grandma came over um in the Windrush generation and one of the things a lot of the people made like huge sacrifices to come over so she couldn't actually bring all of her family over 
um, at that time. So she didn't have all of her kids with her and she did work in a factory. And the point you made as well about housing, um, the housing situation, like there was a notorious landlord in London called uh, Peter Rachman and just lots of exploitation um, of people coming over to find good housing. Um, and I guess that like the Race Relations Acts were passed to sort of help with these situations. The first one um, didn't actually deal with any of those issues of housing and employment. It was only a few years later when those actually came into force. But to think that these laws had been passed, but then you're saying your grandma was still experiencing ill feeling and mistreatment up until the 2000s is, you know, really significant. It just shows how much work we still have to do, I guess, here in the UK. Yeah, so I guess leading on from a lot of the racial unrest that was created when there was a huge influx of people from the Caribbean, well, not huge in relation to the actual like, population of the country, but I guess um, a, lot, a lot of Caribbeans came over um, during the years following the British Nationality Act in 1948. There were lots of big um, violent incidents. Um, one of them notably was were the Notting Hill riots that coincided with some other riots that took place in Nottingham as well. So apparently the situation was um, on that day in 1958, a black man and his white wife were arguing outside a train station and people looking on thought that he must have been attacking her or something. People intervened, it got very heated and then there were just days of riots. No one was killed, thankfully, um, but it was just a lot of violence. And I guess that really shattered the whole image that had been created about Britain being the sort of home for all of the Commonwealth, that it was a place that people would be welcomed. It really made it clear to the international community and um, others that it wasn't all smooth sailing um, in Britain in terms of race relations. But something that I think is really quite inspiring that came out of it um, is the sort of legacy of the Notting Hill Carnival. So um, I don't know if listeners have heard of Claudia Jones. She's a really inspiring woman. So she was born in Trinidad and then moved to the, the US when she was eight years old and was heavily involved in anti-establishment, um, lots of communist activities in the US. But course because it was the 1950s it wasn't really safer to be there so she was deported and then she moved to the UK just sort of before the the Notting Hill um, riots in the in the 1950s and she established the first major black newspaper um, called the West Indian Gazette and that was edited in Brixton um, within the communities where a lot of the um, diaspora lived from the Caribbean Um, and following the horrific scenes of the riots. She instigated the Notting Hill Carnival as a way to sort of wash the taste of Notting Hill and Nottingham, the riots out of everyone's mouths. So yeah, I guess from something that was so fraught and violent and painful, there is a lasting legacy of, I guess, inclusion and celebrating different cultures that hopefully we can aspire to in the UK. But 
I don't know, Charlotte, if you want to tell us a bit more about the perspective from Birmingham, since this is the UOB, it's good to know. Um, the main perspective of Birmingham, to be honest, my mum is from Birmingham, but she hasn't told me a lot about historically what, you know, unrest that unfolded from these events in particular. However, from having a look myself, I've seen that there's been a, there was a lot of copycat unrest over here from the Notting Hill um, riots, which I think was similar to the riots we had a few years ago where it started in London and then the other major cities kind of followed through. Hmm. Um, I mean, there was just a lot of unrest in general from um, seeing the influx of Caribbean people. So there was that slogan about, if you want an N-word for a neighbour, vote Labour. Um, yeah. And they felt bold enough to have that slogan. And a lot mm. of people voted from reading that slogan because they were frustrated with seeing a lot of Black people just living their lives throughout England. Mm. Um, so on the negative side, um, <laughs> there, was a lot of, there was a lot of hostility throughout the years from, they say skinhead groups. Not all skinheads were involved in um, racism against Black people and people of colour in general. Um, but they just didn't like seeing anybody who wasn't white English due to the amount of immigration at the time. Mm. Um, from the carnival, though, um, I did see a lot of other cities also followed through with the carnival. So that's more positive. So as well as the riots, the carnivals did get set up in other cities as well. You've got carnivals in Bristol, Manchester. You had one in Birmingham as well up until very recently, but I think they're bringing that one back soon. Hmm. Um, so it's just a case of acknowledging where the different groups of people are here and letting everybody yeah. know that they can welcome themselves, even if they don't feel welcomed by the opposition. And then through that, you find a lot of allies coming in, people from other cultures saying, what are the Caribbean people doing? That's fun. That's interesting. I want to see what's going on there. And I feel that helped with integration a lot because people yeah. see our culture because it's so vibrant. They could see us celebrating and then they could come and join in and they felt welcomed as opposed yeah. to before, it was a case of seeing us looking different and just immediately feeling scared due to the racist media stereotypes and a lot of these political campaigns that were very much against us at the time. Yeah, I want to pick up on, I, I think it's really great, um, the sort of positive legacy that we're, um, that's being built now. I want to pick up on the point that you made about sort of political agendas and yeah. how um, authorities kind of cap capitalized on the ill feeling um, against people of color and um, to for their own gain. It actually impacted the legislation. So in 1962, um, a, a few years after the Notting Hill riots and that publicity, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act was passed. Um, yeah. And really interestingly, Rennie Edo Lodge references in um, her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. She mentions how the act contrasts how the 1948 British Nationality Act referred to people of the Commonwealth. So while initially they were explicitly referred to as citizens, in the 1962 act, they're referred to as immigrants. And 
with the name immigrants, all of these other negative connotations come about that we can see now. And it put a lot of limits on the people who could come to the country. So well before they were welcomed because they were useful in 1962, they were seen as undesirable and actively barred from coming into the country in different ways. But yeah, fun fact of the, of the um, podcast episode today, I'm just interested to hear if listeners know that nine days before Malcolm X died, he actually visited Smethwick in the West Midlands near our university, well, relatively near our university in the same area. I thought it was really interesting to know. Apparently he came to visit Bruce at some point. I'm not sure if that actually happened now, but he did make a trip to Birmingham. The reason he came to Smethwick actually was because of that if you want an N-word for a Labour campaign, because it was a Smethwick MP who pushed that out. And then mm. within Smethwick, because it was the Conservative Party, they suddenly gained a rising vote from that slogan. Mm. So that was what motivated Malcolm X to come over here. And then in the end, he said that he felt that the racism within Britain was actually worse than the US. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah I think we often hear um, the people in the UK distancing themselves from the racism we see in the US like for example with the events you know of the summer with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement there were initially comments like oh I'm so glad I'm not in the US you know like what happens over there is terrible but what, what is fine over here um, but I think it's really good to reflect on that historical perspective and current perspective to know that there's a lot that needs to be done in the UK as well but yeah um Fast forwarding from from sort of the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, I think it's really interesting to look into the hostile environment policy of 2012 and the Windrush scandal that followed it. So for people who don't know, um, it was a policy that was created with an aim to create here in Britain a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants. And it basically turned various aspects of society into immigration officers. So um, people were required to show papers when getting a job, a house, when accessing healthcare. And so doctors, landlords, teachers, and other public sector workers became responsible for immigrant checks. And there were a lot of penalties, for example, against landlords if they were to let to someone who turned out to be an illegal immigrant. Um, and of course, this has had wide ranging impact on a whole range of people. But specifically, when thinking about the legacy of the Windrush generation, it had a huge impact on people who had come over during that time, because people were expected to produce documentation as evidence of their status in the UK for each year of them being here. And if you can imagine, if you came over between you know, 1948 and 1973, back then when there was a promise that you were a citizen, um, it'd be difficult to provide documentation for each, each of those years. And a lot of people were unable to do that. A lot of people were denied services like healthcare and housing, found out that a lot of people had been deported. It was a huge issue. Yeah, I was pretty shocked to hear about all the things that were going on because um, a lot of these places where people, these people have came from specifically were part of the British colonies. So therefore they were considered a part of Britain. 
And the whole point of the 1948 Act was to make that clear that they were as welcome here as people who were born on British soil. So therefore, they could come over here and work and the immigration process would be a lot easier. Somehow, however, um, with the changes around immigration that have happened over the years, they decided that they wanted to cut back on immigration, which would make sense from the date that they enacted these new rules. But to go back on formerly, you know, former promises and former immigration procedures that happened so many, so many years ago, a lot of these people came here at such a young age. A lot of children came here from the Caribbean. They've grown up here for 60, 70 years. And now they're being told to go back to a place they probably only visit once every few years. If that, mm. some people have never been back. And they are told somehow that um, their way of coming over here was illegal all of a sudden. And I thought that was horrendous. And I, just watching the way that people were treated it was inhumane, in my yeah. opinion. So in March, um, the Lessons Learned review uh, was published. Um, and so there's definitely a hope that in future, uh, this won't happen again, but I guess it remains to be seen. But yeah, I guess to just round up um, and bring it back to the present and to your sort of personal experiences, um, I'm interested to know what inspired you, Charlotte, to get into law. So my first influence from law came from the fact that Legally Blonde was my favorite film. How to Get Away with Murder was my favourite TV show and Ace Attorney Phoenix Wright was my favourite game. So I thought, hmm, there seems to be a bit of a pattern here. Why don't I actually think about studying law? So yeah. at the time I was doing hairdressing and I had absolutely no, I had no A-levels. Um, I had a lot of illness when I was in school, so I had really low attendance and mm. therefore I was only able to get three GCSEs. So wow. I was doing hairdressing. <laughs> I was doing hairdressing um, and I thought, you know what? I've always wanted to go to university. I could do this one course that will teach me law and criminology to a university standard that will get me into a university. So why not go and do that? Worked hard, got into Birmingham. Here I am. Um, I just like talking a lot. So that's why law, like advocacy it stood out to me as something I could see myself doing. I did a lot of acting when I was younger. Yeah. I like public speaking. Um, I get passionate about things and want to talk about them. So I thought, you know, the barrister route, it just aligns with my personality naturally. And yeah. after spending some time in the court, seeing a barrister, I saw a barrister, um, this black woman, she had like dyed hair, half half sides shaved off when I went to visit. And she was just coming down the stairs and I thought she looked amazing. And yeah, she just wow. locked eyes with me and she just smiled at me, this big smile. And I thought, you know what? I want to be That's like me. that someday. And that oh, was my wow. main motivation. Just I was just attracted to law from the start. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's so inspiring to hear and so great as well that you're able to see, even if it's, you know, not a lot, but able to see some representation um, within yeah. the, you know, the barrister profession and be able to strive for that, that's so cool. So I guess 
what advice would you give to your younger self or to young people who might have been in a similar situation about how to get onto a law course, how to approach law in general? Um, advice to my younger self, I'd say, was when I first showed up in uni, um, I was 20 years old, so I was a bit older than most first years, I'd say. Um, and in a sense, I felt inadequate because not only did I go to a state school, um, you know, like I said, I didn't really have many qualifications. Um, I felt like the way everybody acted and spoke to each other was so different. Because in my mind, a bunch of 18-year-olds gaining independence, coming to university, they'd be a lot more unruly, a lot louder. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was the loudest person in the room when I came to uni. And immediately I was hit with a sense of imposter syndrome because it was like, oh, everybody else, they know how to manage money better than me. Um, they've had etiquette. Um, they have better education. So when I was just kind of thrown into law school and expected to know things and I didn't know them, I just thought, oh, it's because of where I'm from. So I tell my younger self to calm down a little bit. Um, and then you'll realise that everybody else isn't exactly the same boat. Like you just need to speak to people and start focusing on what makes you different to everybody else because only 0.5% of Russell Group um, acceptances go out to students who are from a Caribbean background yeah and that's acceptance that's not people who actually attend and graduate we're more likely to either drop out or not get anything higher than a 2-2 and that yeah. kind of was playing in my mind in first and second year every time I struggled it was like oh so I tell myself to calm down hmm. and to just go to the study skills things and admit when you need help you need to decide whether you really want to go where you want to go. And then you just need to find your own path because I thought I couldn't do anything with like my, GC my GCCs and my lack of A-levels. And in the end I did Yeah, because I knew I wanted to do it. So I would never say to anybody that they can't pursue a legal career um, because of their background. I'd say it would be harder, yes. But if you want it, you should 100% go for it. That's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's been great speaking with you today. And I really hope that anyone aspiring to study law and aspiring to start out um, in the legal sphere can just take heed of those words um, and be inspired. So thanks so much for speaking with me today.